Well, let me try to paint the picture of how the return entry might have gone. Okay, so I would come home, and right away, you know, the boys are there, and they might say something like, Dad, so good to see you. What'd you get me? Um, and of course, of course, what I could say, and I'm sure this is exactly how it went. Well, boys, I'm home. And they would have said, of course, Dad, it's so great to see you. Let's do a prayer meeting right now, and then you can tell us everything that you learned in your seminary classes. And so we would spend the next two hours just talking through the finer points of the Greek text in Philippians. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, okay, I'm glad some of you are laughing because I don't know of many young boys that are into the you know, the finer points of the Greek text, as, as good as that might be. And maybe, maybe you know of some children that are into that kind of thing. But basically what it got into was, and what I'm telling you that story is, what is it that we most want in a relationship? There's a, a, a pastor that I listen to from time to time. His name is Andy Stanley. He said one time, we will never have an authentic relationship with anyone if it's based on what we can get from it. We will never have an authentic relationship with someone, and we'll never have, you can make, make this true for our relationship with God. If our relationship with God is based on what we can get from it, it will never be the authentic, rich relationship that He would desire for us. If my relationship with my children, my spouse, my world, and any relationship I have in this life, if it's based on what I can get from it, it will never be quite the authentic, rich one that God would love for his children. That he talks about when he talks about what marriage is supposed to be about. When he, he talks about what it is supposed to be with our children. This morning we'll be talking about the most important questions and we'll get to one most significant question and that's the title, the most important question that we may ever ask. Before we get there, we'll ask three more questions. We'll ask three leading questions to get to this final question. But I can tell you, this, I'm giving you the heads up like I already did this morning. Who is Jesus to us is that final question question. And depending on how we can answer that question, it will make all the difference in, in that relationship you have with yourself, with your spouse, with your community, with your children, your grandchildren, anything that you have in this life. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, one of the more famous stories you can ever find in the Bible. I would invite you to turn to John chapter 6 starting with verse 1, and we'll be looking at that together today. Certainly, God is providing for His children. He's providing for us. He's providing for me. But there's a deeper question than just what He has and what He provides, what He might give us. He might be asking, who is us, or who am I to you? Who is Jesus to us? The setting of today's story was by the Sea of Galilee, and this is 
just being honest, this is not the picture of the Sea of Galilee, but I, I, by l- reading the, the story and reading about what was going on, I, this looks similar, at least in my mind, to maybe what it was looking like. He was by the sh- shore of a sea, and so that lake would have been bigger than this. He was on the hillside. And a huge crowd of people, 5,000 men, so many people think there could have easily been maybe 10, 15, even 20,000 people may have been with Jesus on this day. What happens next in this story has been told for 2,000 years. When you were in Sunday school, you may have seen this on a flannel graph. Storybooks. You probably have heard a sermon about this. There's been devotions written about this. I don't think that I could probably give something new that you maybe haven't heard before, but I, I, I discovered in reading this, there's things I never saw before in reading this, and I hope I can share something of value today. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit that'll take it far further than I ever could. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that you'd open our eyes and minds to what you might be about. I pray that what you were teaching your disciples that day on the Sea of Galilee would be something that would be heard in our our own minds and hearts and would resonate beyond just this room and to all of our lives and all of our world with anyone we might meet. In Jesus' name, amen. The question that we're going to get to is far more important than any question we might ask. It's more important than who am I, than what is right, what is wrong. If you're into this kind of film, am I caught in the matrix, if you remember that film. It's more important than who will I marry. The question is, who is Jesus to me? And we're going to go through this text. It takes us beyond, what do we get from Jesus and, who, uh, and what he is to me? Let's read John chapter 6 just now. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you have the Version Bible, uh, there is, uh, there is uh, the, the notes are in there. You could look under events and it is there. John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on that mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. John pulls this book together to put this into context, how it all fits. Jesus pulls his book, the Gospel of John, probably near the end of his life. Most people believe it was dictated. Somebody wrote down what he remembered and what he recalled from these different stories. I, I, I can just imagine an older person. He may have been in his 70s or 80s when he was writing down. We can maybe sometimes look back and we have a different perspective. And he picked out different events. And he didn't call them miracles. He called them signs. Like a sign on the side of a road. This is what it's pointing to. So it wasn't the miracle It was what the miracle or what the sign was pointing to is what he was desiring to emphasize. And for him, it needed to emphasize who Jesus was. In this sign, Jesus feeds people. It's a story that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. You can read about this same event in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, if you read John's story of it, he's got some significant and unique details that are not found in the other Gospels. None of the other Gospels have this. And, and maybe later this week, you might find your own details. I, I, I'm not going to be able to bring them all out this morning. You might look in, what did Matthew say about this event? What did John, or, you know, Luke? We'll be looking primarily at John's depiction of this story. These details help round out this picture of who Jesus is. And what John is really getting to is it's, it's not so much his great faith that makes us believe, or because John knew these things and his faith is so great, we can have faith like John. Rather, John is pointing out to, these are significant facts, these are the things that happened. This gives us reason to believe in the Jesus that he knew. I'm sure John could see his world changing. Maybe he saw people that used to believe in the faith falling away. Maybe he saw people that used to have that vibrant, strong faith, that rich, powerful faith that was changing everything in their life, and then it was, it seemed like it was like leaking, seeping away. Maybe he heard about the persecution happening in these different places and he was concerned. What if these people lose faith? And I think we might have some of those same questions today. If we look around at our world, we say, no one believes in this stuff anymore. Even the people that used to believe don't seem to believe it like they used to. Our world, you know, you can go anywhere today. You can buy, you know, buy buy your lunch for the week ahead. But how many people are actively considering who Jesus is? John cared about his world. He cared about what people knew about his Jesus. 
So John is helping us think through what we might have. But before we get to that most important question, we're going to look at some other questions first. There is an outline in your program this morning. I would invite you to look at that. It might help you think through maybe what he's teaching us this morning. The first line in your outline is, what do we have? What do we have? John 6 verse 5 says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? We're told that Jesus was walking along and then he lifted his eyes up. He noticed what was coming and he saw opportunity. It it came to Jesus. Oh, this is an opportunity. This great need that was about to come. Where where and how many times has this happened? Where we see major issues and major problems. Oh my goodness, how in the world is this going to work out? Jesus saw opportunity. And that might be all that a person needs today. Maybe you're in a situation today where you see great need, great, great want, great something. That could be the very thing that is great opportunity. And this is the first note that I would like to give you about how John wrote his story just a little bit different. I'd like you to look very carefully at verse 6. We're told, if you, if you look at the text, very close, like, like the Greek text, if you would pour into that, you would see that it's a, what's called a parenthetical note. It's, a, it's an author's, basically, little note to go alongside this to help us understand better the nuance or the situation that was going on. It's, the, it's not in the other Gospels. It's only in John. It says in John 6 verses 6. What does it say there? It says, Jesus had in his mind already what he was going to do. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knew what was in the people's hearts. I think he knew what that little boy might do. He doesn't say what everybody else should do or could do or would do. It emphasizes what he would do, though. He already had in his mind what he would be about. But Jesus will do what Jesus will do. Think about what that means. That might give us great peace in whatever circumstances we might face. Have you heard this verse? He works all things out for the good that love him. And there is no qualifier for that. Our actions, the world, all the detractions, nothing can stop Jesus from accomplishing his plan. Even we cannot stop Jesus. Nothing could stop that day from Jesus accomplishing his plan. Nothing can stop our Jesus from accomplishing his plan in this world today. And that's a great thing, because what do we bring to God's plan? If you are very honest with yourself today and honest with your world and everything that around you, what could we contribute to God's great plan that's going to put it over the top? Jesus, that's awesome. Jesus has got a great plan. No, Joe, you just do your thing, and it's going to go completely over the top and be marvelous. Do we really think that? What do we have? I don't think we have enough time. Last Saturday, 
each of us was given an extra hour. Do you remember that? It wasn't that long ago. What did we do with our extra hour? Did we manage to fill it up? Oh, my goodness, for sure, right? It was gone. What about money? How many of you have so much money, you're like, man, what am I going to do with the extra money I have lying around here? Some of you might. You know, maybe you know someone that's like that. I don't know those people yet. What about understanding? As a parent, like, so this is what happened in, in my, my son's world. Okay, my sons are getting to that age, middle school age-ish stuff. Turns out that one of my sons, there's a, a girl at his school that liked him this week. And how do you handle that? Okay, can I just point out something right now? I don't understand women. I just don't right now. And my, my fifth grade son had to go through this week and try to figure out how to handle the women in his life, including a classmate. If you understand how this works, please talk with me. I would love your insight because I don't know if I have enough. Under, I can tell you right now, I do not have enough understanding for what my sons might face. In general, what kind of resources do we have? Do we really think we have? Do, let's be honest. Can we just be honest for a moment? Do we have any resources that God really needs to accomplish his purpose? This is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't just own the hills and he just doesn't own the cattle. He owns the hills, he owns the cattle, he owns everything. He could sell one cow. I think a cow goes for what? A thousand dollars these days? That's a lot of money. You know what he paves his streets with? I've read the story. Have you read about this? He pays them with gold. What does our Jesus know? So what are you going to tell Jesus? What are you going to give him? What understanding do you bring to the table that that's finally God can accomplish his plan? It doesn't work like that. So what do we bring to the table? What did the people bring? Jesus already knew that day what he would accomplish, and this can give us great confidence and peace going into our future knowing he's got it sorted out. Praise God that that's the way he does it. So the first question, what do we have? If you, if you want to write, my answer would, that I might write in there would be nothing. Well, maybe you believe you do have something, all right? Praise God if you have something. Um, but we don't have much. On the whole scheme of things, we don't have much. So if, if we are in need then, what do we want? What could used to accomplish his purpose. So the next line is, what do we want? 6 verse 9, John 6 verse 9 says this, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So here's the practical lesson. There's a very, maybe more obvious practical lesson in this. As we give all that, we already know we have nothing, but if we do give what we have to Jesus, we could let him do the rest. He can even multiply the good things that he might do. I will turn us to Matthew. For, I'm, I'm not, you don't have to turn there, but if you read in Matthew, it says, he lifted his eyes to heaven and gave thanks. I think maybe the reason why we offer thanks, we give grace before meals, might be from this story. For thousands of years, Christians have been lifting their eyes to heaven and saying, God, thank you for this food. And maybe it's just... Like a prayer, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let the, you know, it's just a re repeated prayer. But Jesus lifted his, 
eyes to heaven. So if you think about it, he lifted his eyes when he saw the crowd, and then he lifted his eyes to heaven and gave thanks for what he had. But essentially, what is he giving thanks for? A whole lot of nothing. John is the only gospel that tells us that this man, or the, sorry, this boy gives him barley loaves. This is the cheapest bread that you could have. This boy didn't have much. It showed his means. But John is giving us the context of the situation. He's telling us these are some of these details. And a boy with meager means, almost nothing, is now becoming the very center of the story. So even as we recognize that we have nothing, and that's, let's take ourselves down to nothing. Take it down, we have nothing to offer. As we start realizing we have nothing, but then we give that little bit to Jesus, what might happen? Let's talk about these characters in the story. What did they all want? What did they have? And maybe what do we want is what it might get to. And I can, I can put myself in the shoes of some of the people in the story. We're told that the, the man that brought the little boy to Jesus was Andrew. If you read throughout the Bible, you can find at least uh, three different times that Andrew brought people to Jesus. And I can relate to Andrew because I'm always trying to bring people in to what's going on. So if I could say what I want, I want to bring more people in. Let's bring them all in. I want everybody here at Bethany on Sunday. I want to bring everybody to the event I'm at. I, wanna, I just want to, and it drives my wife crazy. Why do you keep on inviting all these people? All right? So what did he want? He wanted this little boy involved. And I can just imagine what he might have said to that little boy. The little boy may have been at the front of the line. He was a little bit faster. He had his lunch with, and it's a little bit of trickery perhaps. And I, this is not in the Bible. This is just my own words. Hey, little boy, do you want to meet Jesus? Give me your lunch and we can make something happen. All right? So that maybe that's not what happened. But he wanted people involved. He wanted people a part of things. So what did the boy want? He was by far the most generous and pure-hearted of the bunch. When he heard about the need, he gave what he had. I think, can we all agree, though, that this boy wasn't very smart? And the reason I say that is, the boy had, he had five loaves and two fish. I'm thinking that's more than enough for him for lunch for that day. How many people, I can't imagine he was the only one, how many people brought a lunch that day? Several, right? He, I can't imagine he was the only one. But he was the only one that was willing to give up his lunch. So what did he want? I think maybe God was already speaking in his heart. Maybe I need something more. Having just my needs met is not enough. So what do I want? This might speak to some of you. Whereas some of you, I just want, like for me, I want more people involved. Some of us also might say, well, hmm, I'd like, I'd like something different. This is what I really like. And so we put it in our hearts. And maybe right now in your heart and mind, you're like, this is what I would most want in my life. And people were hanging on to their lunch, but not that boy, because he thought maybe Jesus would give him more than, than what he had. He realized what he had was not all that was it, it was about. Let's think about the boy's mom. What did the boy's mom want? She wanted her little boy to have something to eat that day. She packed a lunch. Can we praise God for moms that think ahead? This story doesn't happen without mom 
making sure her son packed a lunch that day. There's wisdom. Isn't, isn't it interesting that God does give wisdom to us in a very practical way? This story doesn't happen this way unless, and I, I'm throwing that out there, it doesn't, it's not in there anywhere that his mom packed a lunch for him. But we do know moms make a big, sometimes it's just a practical wisdom that opened the door for the good things that might happen. What did the crowd want? Did you skip ahead just a little bit? You can read ahead. What did they want? They wanted to make Jesus king. So all these different people had different things. Andrew wants more. I just want more. I want a party. I'm, I'm like Andrew. I want a party. I want everybody there. The mom wanted her son to be filled. Everybody had these different agendas, different things. The crowd, what did they want? They wanted a king. They wanted one more sign. They wanted one more thing. They wanted things their way. We're told that the whole crowd followed him because there might be a sign coming. I think sometimes we look at Jesus as this one that might provide one more sign, one more good thing that he might give us. Just give us one more thing. And, and maybe you know a person like this, and maybe this is ourselves. If God would just give us one more sign, then we could truly believe. If God would give me one more sign that is going on, maybe I could know for sure that he is for real. But isn't that sort of forgetting about all of creation? Each of us carry between our ears a 600 gigahertz computer between right in here, right? Isn't that kind of remarkable? We have, we have 1 million megapixel cameras right in front of our heads here, right? Two of them. It's way better than the iPhone. And it helps us record and understand our world that's going around us. We have a... a Smell sensor and sound sensors built right in that helps us understand everything. He thought of everything, didn't he? But what did the crowd want? They wanted one more sign. Just give me one more sign. At the end of this passage, we're told that the, they wanted to seize Jesus. They wanted to take him by force. They wanted to take Jesus as their king. Can you imagine? They're, they're, some of the people are like frustrated with the way their world worked. Finally, we're going to nail this situation. This Roman government is a mess. We're going to win. And maybe we can relate to this. Have you ever wanted God to just kind of just take care of and by force make people believe like they should believe? Wouldn't that be great? Just one more sign, give us one more thing, and the people said, we got 5,000 here. Imagine if they started marching to Jerusalem. The Passover was going on right now. They could take these 5,000 men and they pick up their cousin, you know, John in, in Nazareth, and they pick up a few more relatives down in Bethlehem, and they get to Bethany, and they get a few more. By the time they get to Jerusalem, they could have an army of, say, 20,000 people. With Jesus as king, they can wipe out the Roman government and prop this Jesus up in charge, and everything would be awesome. And what was Jesus' response to all that? He went away. He was not about to take this world by force. So what do we want? Maybe we, we say in our hearts and minds, we want, 
this person involved, or maybe we want this thing to happen, or we want this physical thing, this lunch, but not a lunch. It's like the physical thing, or we want God to be in charge. We want this, and, and we, those are all maybe not bad things. I'm not saying those are bad, but what was Jesus' intention all along? What is this story for? I don't think it's wrong at all to ask for God to provide for us, to provide for the needs we have, but what does God, what did Jesus most want to be to the people of this day and this time? What did Jesus want? What was Jesus pointing to? To understand that best, we have to skip ahead to the very end of John. And we didn't read these verses. We're going to look at those right now. But here's the final question before we get to the the big one. If all we had was Jesus, would that be enough? That's the final uh, line in in your program there for the outline. If all we had was Jesus, would that be enough? So after this story and Jesus goes away, we'll look at this next week. Next week we're going to talk about a storm that came on. And then Jesus goes through a long message, a sermon that kind of outlines what this message was all about. And we'll get into that more, but we're just going to look at two verses to maybe help us understand better. He was really calling his people to trust in him, to make him all that he was to be. John, 68, John chapter 6, 68 and 69 says, Simon Peter answered him, answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Does Jesus answer prayer? Certainly. But what does he most want? What does he most want for any of us? What did he want for his disciples? What did he want for us? He wants us to be known as the king, the Jesus, the, the Holy One of Israel. I think that's so important. I believe that this is so important to remember because if our lesson today was trust in God with the nothing that we have and he can multiply it and use it, Can we think of a time or a person that asked in earnest, in trust, and in faith for God to deliver something in need and it didn't happen? Did anybody ever go to the altar to be married and say, well, we'll just do this for a while and if it doesn't work out, we'll just get a divorce. No, maybe it feels like that, but I don't think anybody does that. So what happens to that prayer? I'm sure there's earnest prayers that have happened for marriages to stay together and it didn't work out. I'm sure that's happened. Good people. Or we think about children. Has has it ever been prayed? Good Christian families praying that their children would understand and know who God is. And it didn't happen. Isn't that a good prayer to pray? But it doesn't always happen, does it? What do we do? And this is the really the problem that, that if, if we look at the sermon or the, the message of feeding the 5,000 and the little boy just gives his little bit of nothing and God multiplies and answers the prayers, it's amazing and it's beautiful. If that's the end of the lesson and we don't think through, but what about everything else? 
we can leave here discouraged perhaps and maybe an incomplete picture because that's not all that Jesus came to do, just to provide the next thing. Even if it's a good thing, he didn't come just to provide the next thing. So why have people given up on Jesus? Why have people given up on the church? I'm sure there are many people we could go to that say, but I put my trust in God, and if God is loving and all-powerful and all-knowing and all these things, why didn't this work out for me? As long as our relationship with Jesus is about what I might get out of it, I don't think it will ever be an authentic relationship. Near the end of John chapter 6, we're told that the crowd went away. Jesus had a group of 5,000 men, but probably close to maybe 20,000 people. And you know what he did? He gave a really bad message that sent everybody away. What was Jesus thinking? Like, I'm just thinking, the more people involved, the better, right? And what did Jesus do? He gave a message that said, basically, um, yeah, I'm the one you got to have in your life, and nothing else matters. He didn't give them what they wanted. I think anybody at that time could agree the Roman government was terrible. They should have been overthrown. And Jesus didn't deliver. Last week we looked at a man that was healed, but he didn't heal everyone. And as you go through this life, you start realizing that some people's prayers seem to be answered and some people's prayers are not. And why do some get answered and some not? Why do some, some five loaves feed everybody and some five loaves go rotten before we can even eat them? What is going on? What did Jesus have in mind with all these things? And the thing that I get to, I look at this verse and I say, Dear Lord, you are all that we have. So who is Jesus to me? So if this is the promise, you can pray all your good prayers that it may not be answered. If this is the promise, why do people bother? Because if, if we can't guarantee that our children will be where they should be, our marriages will be, or our retirement, or, or whatever, these are good things, why even bother? Look at this verse from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died. It talks in Hebrews chapter 11, talks about all these great saints of the Bible. All these people died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This earth and the things of it were never what he most wanted to give his people. What did he most want to give them? Himself. If you could go to the Sea of Galilee today and then go about 200 miles north, do you know what happened about that time? The Apostle Paul, who was then known as Saul, he went around and he persecuted good, godly, believing Christians. They were thrown in jail and killed. That's what happened. That's sad, isn't it? Fast forward 2,000 years later, you know what they're doing right now in northern Syria? There's Christians, and I don't know the whole story, and I have not met these people. There's supposedly Christian Kurds. I don't know who is who, and it's really confusing. I listened to a story once, and I don't, it's, I don't think anybody knows who is who over there. 
But most people would say there's a group of Christians in this part of northern Syria that are literally dying because they're living in the wrong place at the wrong time. How does that fit in with give Jesus your five loaves and two fish? So what is it? These people in Hebrews 11 might inform us, and I think you could even go one step further. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Do you remember what Hebrews 12 says? In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that Jesus, how, how perfect was Jesus? He's pretty perfect, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let's do what? Let's focus our eyes on Jesus. And what happened to him? He stood on the cross. It's shame. The perfect Jesus had to go to the cross. Maybe this is causing us to re-examine everything we know. In feeding the 5,000, Jesus was teaching a lesson. But then after that is a storm, and that is the test. And we can probably all agree, a storm is coming for all of us. A test. And all these situations, all these things we might say, who is Jesus to us? I, f- I found this quote, if we could pull that quote up, Dave. It says, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So when I look at this quote, I, it's attributed to a pastor that I, I love listening to named Tim Keller. There's also Rick Warren is uh, attributed to it. But I never could find out who originally said it. But one place they attributed it to was to a lady named Corey Ten Boom, uh, a Christian person that survived the Holocaust. And to me, it makes most sense to me that she would have said this more than anyone else. You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. If Jesus were to come into walk into Bethany Church this morning, if Jesus were to walk through that door and he would you know, come right into our midst and he would say, what do we need? What do we want? What would we ask Jesus? What would we say? And we might say, oh, Jesus, I would really like a really good... Would, we, would, we, would anyone maybe say, all right, Jesus, we'd really like a really nice lunch today. And that's a silly question, right? Or, Jesus, we really would like you to put the right political leaders in charge. Now, that's not a bad prayer, but is that the prayer that we would ask? God, put, or Jesus, put the right political leaders. Maybe a better thing that we might ask, Jesus, help me to understand you. So who is Jesus to me? That's the real question. Who is Jesus? Bread was multiplied for free and it sustained the people, but Jesus gives life at great cost. He came to save and satisfy us forever. But if we see Jesus, who he's claiming to be, we would understand that his goal was never to just answer our prayers for the... Yes, he answers our daily needs and he does that. But what would he most want? He would most want us to see ourselves as he sees us and to see him as he is reflected. I think about what it means for me. Um, and Bob, I think we're going to sing one more song before, so we're going to get ready to do that. But if we were to think about what that, that question means, if, if I were to be that, if I would see myself in the image that God sees me, that would, 
that would change things, wouldn't it? I might be the dad that I'm supposed to be all along. Because my, my kids and the way they're going through, I need to be more than what I am right now. And I, I think I can do that best if I see myself as Jesus sees me. That I'm made in his image. I might be the pastor that I might need to be because this church needs a good pastor, doesn't it? And we should be seeking that and wanting that. What if, what if our community had a church in it like Bethany that was seeking to just live out who Jesus was? And like anybody that met us said, these people are different because we believe in that kind of a Jesus. That is the kind of person and and church and family that I would love to be a part of. So who's Jesus? It all hinges, though, on who is Jesus. And I know that's a basic question. You probably could say, oh, Pastor Joe, that's, we've done that. But think about what that means. If Jesus really became everything, it would no longer be about meeting this need or that need or praying that prayer. Jesus, I know you've got this sorted. You knew from the beginning what you wanted. Now help me to live that out. We're going to sing one last song and then we'll invite you to literally pray through with this today. There's going to be people up front that maybe you would even like to come up and pray with the people that are here this morning. We would like to offer an opportunity for you to to think through and make Jesus the Jesus that he is meant to be, the Jesus that John knew. We're going to sing in Christ alone this morning.